you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us today. More than 50% of Californians are fully vaccinated, but things are slowing down out there. And there is concern nationwide about whether the U.S. will hit President Biden's goal of having 70% of all eligible folks at least partially vaccinated by the 4th of July. Here to discuss this and answer all of your coronavirus-related questions, we have Paula Cannon, a professor and virologist at USC's Keck School of Medicine. Paula, welcome back. Hi, good to be back. Now, okay, first, uh, a check-in on vaccination rates. Uh, How is L.A. County doing relative to the rest of the state? Okay, so L.A. County is actually statistically the perfect county to reflect the state. We've got almost identical numbers. Currently, we're looking at 55.1% of our population have had at least one dose and 45.3% are fully vaccinated. So it turns out that Angelinos are actually the average Californians. Who knew? Wow. And, you know, I just saw in the L.A. Times how California has one of the lowest coronavirus transmission levels in the U.S. So it seems like we, we are the model area for, for, for the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. Leading the country, leading the world, as, as is typical. Yeah. yeah. And what about neighboring counties such as Ventura, Orange and San Bernardino? OK, well, not to make it a competition. Um, Ventura and Orange are doing a little bit better. Their numbers are kind of two percentage points higher on both total vaccinations and full vaccinations, although San Bernardino is not quite as good. And that's a little concerning. You know, their numbers are about 41% have had at least one shot and only 33% of the population are fully vaccinated. So not as good there. Are you concerned at all, Professor, about uh, the state maybe hitting a wall in terms of vaccinating people and maybe jeopardizing all the good work that's been done so far? Mm. No, well, at least not yet. I think what we've done so far is actually pretty amazing. And remember, the numbers I've just been, you know, quoting at you, they're for the full population. And that Mm -hmm. includes, you know, kids under 12 who are too young to be vaccinated. So if you kind of do the back of the envelope math, we're actually closer to having about um, two thirds of the eligible population having had at least one shot. And we've only just started vaccinating even the younger teens. So we're still going to get a boost from um, from vaccinating that number as well. I gotta remember. And then, you know, yeah, I gotta remember to to just highlight the good news. Sometimes I get back into, "Are you concerned about this?" And I just gotta remember <laughs> there, there was good news. At least, just give all of us a second to be happy about it. Yeah, but you know, we don't want to ignore the fact that there is like there has been a slowing down of people getting vaccinated, and so now we, you know that reflects that we've got harder work to do to vaccinate, if you like, the long tail. You know, people who are less likely to be able to go out and get vaccinated, take time off work, etc. And I. So we're seeing a switch to this, the strategies around vaccination to bring those opportunities into neighborhoods and make it easier for the, you know, the rest of the population. Now, for those who are vaccinated, uh, I always get a lot of uh, questions about boosters. Uh, when will we need one? Uh, when will it happen? Uh, we, we will need one at some point. Is that uh, the, the prevailing uh, theory here? It's kind of, um, I think so. Yeah, you know, boosters are a common concept in vaccination. We've talked about this before. You know, you need to get a tetanus booster every 10 years. Um, We don't yet know what's going to happen with the coronavirus vaccines, but there's two things that would make this necessary. 
First of all, if our vaccine-induced immunity does start to wane over time, and we don't yet know that, but we're monitoring people, looking at, for example, people's antibody levels to see if they do go down. But then secondly, and, you know, it's also unclear whether any of the emerging variants of the coronavirus we're hearing about might change our vaccination needs. You know, if, if we're going to have to have a tweaked version of the vaccine that's a better match to the prevailing strains of coronavirus we're likely to encounter rather than the original strain that the vaccine was based on. So that could be another reason why we might need to have boosters. So the numbers will be a, an indication of when we might need them and, and how they might be rolled out. I think so. Yeah. You know, it's kind of in a way all about the real world examples as yeah. well. You know, if we start to see people getting sick at higher rates who've been vaccinated than the current, you know, extremely low rates, then that would be a red flag. And, um, you know, interestingly, some of the um, Gulf states, um, such as United Arab Emirates, you know, the majority of people there got a vaccine from China called Sinopharm and the protection protection's not as good. So they've already started rolling oh, out wow. booster shots yeah. of the Moderna vaccine for their citizens. You know, six months after they're fully vaccinated, they can get a third boost as well. So this is something I think we're going to see increasingly. And it may be um, a reflection of some of the vaccines that are um, not as good as the, you know, the ones that we currently are lucky to have in the U.S. And Professor, I, I read that uh, the National Institute of Health has uh, begun a clinical trial with fully vaccinated people. What's the latest on that one? Yeah, they do. They have a trial where they're taking about, I think it's a couple of hundred fully vaccinated people. And then three to five months later, you know, it doesn't matter which of the three authorized vaccines they had, Moderna, Pfizer or J&J, but they're going to give them a booster of Moderna and again, see if that prolongs protection against the rest of us who've just had the recommended two doses. So we'll, we'll get that information in a few months as well. We're talking with Paula Cannon, virologist at USC's Keck School of Medicine. You mentioned variants earlier, uh, Professor. How is California and the U.S. Uh, doing on sequencing COVID-19 and tracking the different strains of that virus? Yeah, so since we realized that, you know, the coronaviruses are capable, capable of mutating to form these new variants and it wasn't enough to just do the standard PCR test, which is kind of a yes-no test, we've also been looking at the whole sequence of the complete viruses. It's kind of like the sort of fingerprint ID. And the good news is, frankly, that since um, probably about February, when the government poured a lot of money into doing this, California has been doing really well. And now we sequence about 10% of all infections, which is massively more than the trickle we were doing at the beginning of the year. And that information is all collected by the CDC. So they can see if new variants, if there's outbreaks anywhere in the country of these so-called variants of concern. And as time goes on, well, I mean, it seems like we're getting better at tracking them and making sure we know exactly where they are and what's happening with them. Yes, indeed. And, you know, because every virus is a tiny little bit different, it's also a good way to kind of do really good contact tracing. You can sort of look at this sort of the, you know, this blueprint of the virus and you can identify if, for example, an outbreak you can trace it back to a school or a specific group of people as well. So there's there's real value in doing the sequencing as well from contact tracing points of view. And as we think of how places uh, such as, in, like in Europe, are, are doing when it comes to new strains popping up and vaccinations lagging, I mean, what should people keep in mind as they as they travel around? Summer's here, uh, people want to <laughs> go out and do oh, stuff yeah. <laughs> and travel around uh, because everyone's eager to do so. They are indeed. And, and, you know, frankly, you know, Europe's not as good as the U.S., both in terms of vaccination rates and monitoring by sequencing. And, you know, we're seeing some of these variants are definitely an emerging problem in some countries. In my you know, home country of the United Kingdom, the strain from India is starting to sort of become more prevalent there. But I, I say to people, if, if you're planning to travel, there's kind of, you know, maybe three things to consider. 
first of all, you know, your own and your family's personal safety mm. and your ability to not be part of the problem. And the way to do that is to be fully vaccinated. And hopefully by now, that's a no-brainer for people. But secondly, just find out about the proposed destination. You know, if it's a COVID hotspot, just please don't go, even if you're fully vaccinated, because we know that fully vaccinated people can on occasion get very mild or asymptomatic infections. And there's a low but not zero chance you could spread it to others. And then third, I think this is really important. Be respectful of that country. What are its rules and recommendations? And this is really a time to reflect on the you know, the privilege we have as Americans to be in a country where vaccines are available to anyone who wants them, while many people in the rest of the world look on us with envy. So, you know, the COVID pandemic is still extremely serious in many destinations, and maybe we should think about limiting our travel to places such as this amazing country we live in or, or other destinations where the rates are oh, it's funny you m- It's funny you mentioned that because I got a little interesting, I, I think maybe dilemma coming up on uh, on mm-hmm. Saturday. My wife is in Utah visiting our, our grandsons. Um, I'm mm-hmm. obviously here in, in Pasadena. I'm going to meet her there on Saturday and she's been telling me that no one in the state of Utah wears a mask. Not a mm-hmm. single, not in a store, not in a restaurant. I realize that there are different, uh, you know, different parts of the country have different rules, but my goodness, I'm mm-hmm. going to wear a mask ask. I got a bad yeah. feeling, Paula, that I'm going to be in some kind of confrontation. If you see it on the news, <laughs> know that uh, I don't intend to be confrontational, but I mean, that that's, I mean, yeah, you got to yeah. know where you're going to know exactly what uh, what's being done there, it seems like. Well, I, I think I just wear your state of California t-shirt as well, and then people will just roll their eyes and give you a pass with your mask. I hope so. I hope that's all they do <laughs> is roll their eyes and not say anything. That's uh, Paula Cannon, virologist with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Paula, as always, thank you very much. Thanks, A. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcasts, I'm e. Martinez. Last Friday, a federal judge struck down California's decades-old ban on assault rifles, arguing that it was unconstitutional. The state plans to appeal. The ban is one of more than 100 laws on the state's books, restricting the use of firearms from directives on dealers and buyers to background check requirements to possession bans. Here to talk more about California's long and storied history with gun laws and what this new ruling means for the future of gun laws in the state, we have CalMatters political reporter Ben Christopher. Ben, welcome back. 
Hey, thanks for having me. All right, before we get to this uh, current case, I want to review a little history with you because you and I have spoken before about this. But can you mm-hmm. remind us uh, of the incident back in 1967 that really started California down our gun law path? Yeah, sure. So uh, up until the 1960s, there were relatively few gun laws on the books in California. But I think it's fair to say the first major debate and, and the first time it became really a politicized issue was in, as you say, 1967. And the story starts in Oakland when uh, the Black Panthers had taken up this practice of policing the police, is the way they put it, and basically shadowing uh, cops around Oakland while openly carrying uh, rifles and pistols and shotguns as a sort of a response uh, to police brutality, just kind of putting the, the police on watch. And so an Alameda County assemblyman named Don Mulford, who was actually a Republican at the time, believe it or not, um, introduced a ban on the open carrying of firearms. And the Panthers decided to protest that bill. So 30 of them showed up at the state capitol and marched around inside with uh, loaded firearms, including shotguns and rifles, which if you've ever had to wait in the security line to get into the state capitals, it's pretty wild to imagine. But it was a uh, I think in response to that protest, the legislature very quickly passed this, this bill, the Mulford Act, and, and, and it was signed by uh, none other than Governor Ronald Reagan, mm. who said, and, and I'm quoting here, there is absolutely no reason why out on the street today, civilians should be carrying a loaded weapon. So um, in a way, this, this event really kind of kicked off the modern gun rights debate, at least in California, but it also just shows how much the politics have changed, uh, where you, you have a Republican icon as storied as Ronald Reagan saying something like that. Yeah, and it's interesting to know, too, that it was also a Republican governor that signed the assault weapon ban uh, after a school shooting in Stockton, California. Remind us really quick what happened there. Yeah, sure. So, so, so this was 1989. At the time, it was a shocking and I think unprecedented kind of mass shooting event. A man walked into a school in Stockton and killed five children and wounded many others with a semi-automatic rifle. And the response from the legislature was just this very quick passage of um, the state's first ban on, on what are we sometimes call assault weapons, which which ban 50 specific makes and models of firearms and since been beefed up uh, to include a broader definition of these weapons, which which is kind of the subject of the suit that we're talking about today. But it was signed, as you say, by Republican Governor uh, George Duke Majin, who was uh, no no liberal for sure. Um, But even then, we're stressing that the the legislature, when they passed this, it was was almost along entirely partisan lines. Very few Republicans supported it. And uh, it, it just took the, the shooting um, and this, this horrific event to get the Republican governor on board. And Ben, really, right before we get to the case of what we're uh, mm-hmm. going to talk about, I mean, this this move toward more gun laws has always been ID'd as more of a liberal cause. Why is yeah. that and how has that affected the narrative around gun rights here nationwide? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a totally uh, great comprehensive answer to it. I mean, I think a lot of things are going on. You have the parties have become much more polarized along rural urban lines and firearm ownership which has become much more of a partisan issue for that reason. And you also have groups like the NRA, the National Rifle Association, have become these major political actors and really wed themselves to the conservative movement. So that's propelled the issue as well. But yeah, I mean, it's a great point. We take for granted that this is a, a left, right, blue, red kind of issue, but it, it definitely wasn't always that way. All right. Now to the ruling from uh, Judge Roger Benitez of the uh, U.S. District Court for uh, mm-hmm. Southern District of California, overturning the assault weapon ban because uh, it's unconstitutional, this being uh, viewed as a political move. What's behind it? Yeah, so Judge Benitez, uh, he was appointed to the federal bench uh, by George W. Bush in 2003. And since then, especially in the last few years, he's really made a name for himself in writing these very strong, 
uh, pretty bombastic opinions in defense of gun rights. So in 2019, he struck down the state's ban on magazines that hold uh, 10 rounds or more. Uh, he struck down a law in 2020 that barred Californians from buying ammo by direct mail. And so it's not all that surprising that he also took issue with the state's assault weapon ban and, and also that his opinion was written in this way that really matched as many hot button issues as possible. He compared an AR-15 to a Swiss army knife, which I know the governor really pushed back on. He said that COVID vaccines have led to more deaths than mass shooting events in California, which just, we should stress, there's no evidence that that's true, based on very misleading <laughs> misleading reading of the CDC data. But the point is that he, you know, he has very clear views on the Second Amendment, has uh, an inflammatory kind of writing style. So it's not terribly, terribly surprising that, that, that this is the kind of opinion that he wrote. Now, the state uh, will appeal. So what does yeah. this uh, new federal ruling mean in the immediate uh, for the ban? Does anything change? So in the meantime, the opinion was stayed, which means that the state ban is still in effect on assault weapons. Um, the, the, the judge gave 30 days, meaning that the state has can appeal and then it will be uh, stayed further. Of course, ultimately, this could make its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which with a 6-3 conservative majority may very well take Benitez's view. But obviously, it's way too early to say. And if the law is ultimately struck down, that could have implications for the other states that have these kinds of bans in place, uh, though California is uh, in the minority with only six other states plus D.C. having these kinds of assault weapons bans. What's the timing on the appeal? So there's a thir- the the state has 30 days to file an appeal, and then from then it's really unclear how long this is going to take. These these lawsuits tend to take a very long time to work their way through the court system, and the Supreme Court already has at least one very high profile gun challenge on the docket for the coming fall, which is about whether people have a constitutional right to carry weapons outside the home. And so I think you know everyone is going to be bracing to see just how much uh, this Supreme Court is willing to or wants to reinterpret national gun law, and this case could very well be part of that. Ben, what's the likelihood that an appeal could be successful and the weapons ban remains, or might there be challenges to that? You know, my, my crystal ball this is pretty foggy. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, you know, just given how conservative this this new Supreme Court is, I think um, there's a lot of reason to believe that Benitez's kind of line of reasoning might have a welcome argument. On the other hand, it, um, you know, Chief, Chief John Roberts uh, has, has you know, shown himself to, to be sort of eager to protect the uh, institutional credibility of the court, meaning not not taking anything too far in one direction or the other. So he may um, push back on this. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> your guess, my guess is as good as any, which is not very good, I think. <laughs> That's uh, Cal Matters political reporter Ben Christopher on the Friday federal ruling overturning California's assault weapons ban. Uh, ben, thanks a lot. Thank you. Democracy needs to be heard. 
This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. What does journalism have to do with democracy? The research shows that when trustworthy journalism thrives, so does civic participation. Reporters from LAist and NPR are here to keep your community engaged and informed. And that's why we need your support. By donating now, you're keeping journalism and democracy strong. Donate now at LAist.com slash give. And thank you. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on KPCC.org. Ami Martinez. Look, relate to you, I can't if you's a fake. When level four in the state with your mistakes get you. Rap because they just want a double date with you. Twit picking shoties that they affiliate with you. Labels used to treating rappers like a slave. Starving artists just be happy with your fame. Hermes Joseph Askadome, better known as Nipsey Hussle, was shot and killed a little over two years ago. Now, he left behind family and fans who miss him, but also a legacy of community activism and involvement that really sounds too good to be true. In addition to his music, Nipsey created Marathon Clothing on the corner of Slauson and Crenshaw, the same intersection where he sold his mixtapes on the street years before buying the whole shopping center. He did all that while establishing a co-working environment for young people from the neighborhood to learn about science, tech, and math. Nipsey was a true hero to the people of Hyde Park, but unless you were really into the L.A. rap scene, you might not have known that much about him. But Rob Kenner, one of the founding editors of Vibe magazine, wrote the book on him titled The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Rob, welcome to Take Two. Thanks for having me, A. Martinez. Rob, you met Nipsey over a decade ago. And before we get into the book, tell us what made him such a unique talent when it came to his music and his businesses from what you saw. My first impression of meeting Nipsey Hussle was in the offices of Vibe magazine. This was 2009, and he was coming to play us his mixtape, Bullets Ain't Got No Name, Volume 1. And at the time, uh, he had been trying for a while to get himself into Vibe's next section, which was our showcase for artists on the verge. People like Nas and Jay-Z and Biggie got their first looks in next. So that's what Nipsey wanted to do. And it was an ambitious goal, to be quite honest, for where he was in his career at that moment. But he kept sending his headshots and his demos to Vibe's next section. And from what I learned later, he was getting a little frustrated that we weren't recognizing his brilliance. But like every other goal that Nip set for himself, it was an ambitious one, but he stuck with it and he persevered until he succeeded. So by the time he made it to the offices of Vibe in person, that was like a victory lap for him in and of itself. And when he walked in the room with his gold chain and his immaculate braids and just his personal charisma, you could just tell this was a special person. And that was before he pressed play. Now, Rob, I don't mean this to be a disrespectful question, but for those who had not heard of Nipsey Hussle before he died, maybe they've wanted to ask but don't know how. So I'm going to ask it for him. Why was Nipsey Hussle important? I think Nipsey Hussle is the most underestimated and misunderstood figure in the history of hip hop. He did not ever set out to be famous in the broadest sense. He was more interested in being successful and changing his life and changing the lives of his family and his community. 
but the amount of innovation that he introduced to the music industry is second to none. There are things that Nipsey Hussle did as a business move that no one had ever done before and have now become standard operating procedure for marketing music in a time when nobody wanted to pay for music. You know, you got to remember he was launching his career just as the rap industry and the whole music industry was imploding because of digital downloads and Napster. Nipsey compared his career to as if you were taking off in an airplane and just after takeoff, you had to start rebuilding the engine in midair. And that's what he did, you know, just strictly on a music business level, he changed the game. Things that he was doing with his Crenshaw mixtape, the Proud to Pay initiative, the idea of selling a mixtape for $100 a copy because he believed that his fans wanted to support him. The same music that was available for free download the same day, you know, that was a bold move. And people thought he was crazy, but it became a total smash hit. Today, artists like Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber do the same thing. They, they bundle their new album with tickets to a concert, which was also part of Nip's idea. And you have to think about the way that Nip's whole career was dedicated to uplifting his community. You know, he believed that the people who supported him from the beginning should be the people that he looked out for down the road. And he, you know, a lot of people talk about that, but he really lived it. Nipsey Hussle stayed 10 toes down in his community and reinvested all of the profits of his career into the community that lifted him up as a young man. In all the great inspirational stories in hip-hop, Nipsey Hussle stands apart. You mentioned that phrase, 10 toes down. We're going to get into what that meant to Nipsey coming up a little bit later on. But I wanted to get into the book and, and a story in the book that really stood out to me right off the bat, because Nipsey never wanted to compromise anything about himself or his art, which can be easier said than done when fame and money are on the line. And, and Rob, you, you know this, working in the music industry, that sometimes people decide to nah, sell out maybe is a rough word, but maybe they compromise themselves a little bit. Tell us what happened when Nipsey finally got a meeting at Interscope Records in 2000. Oh, that was a real turning point for his understanding of how to present himself to the world. Nipsey Hussle loved hip-hop, and he wanted to be a rap star with every fiber of his being. So at a certain stage in his development, he was working very closely with Dexter Brown. Dexter had some connections at Interscope Records because he did photography for the label and Dexter could see that Nipsey really wanted a record deal. And so he said, all right, if you want to see for yourself, we'll go up to Interscope Records and I'll get you a meeting. So they went up there, they played the demo for a pretty important A&R at the label. And this uh, industry guy looks at him and says, well, the, the songs are kind of rough, but you've got a great look. Maybe you could get in the gym and build up some lean muscle mass and work with a choreographer. And, you know, you could be like a teen heartthrob kind of thing. And Nipsey Hussle was so disappointed at that moment. He just stood up and said, Dexter, let's get out of here. The meeting is over. We're talking to writer Rob Kenner about his book, The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Now, at his memorial in Staples Center, uh, Nipsey's partner, Lauren London, shared uh, personal reflections of him. But then considering where she was and, and who was in the crowd, she said this. 
I'd like to say something to my city, Los Angeles. Y'all from LA, stand up. Because this pain is really ours. You know, we know what it meant to us. We lost an incredible soul. We lost someone very rare to us and we lost a real one. And we won't ever be the same. But in Hustle's words, because he used to always say this, the game is gonna test you, never fold. Stay 10 toes down. It's not on you, it's in you. And what's in you, they can't take away. And he's in all of us. Rob, you mentioned that earlier, stay 10 toes down. What does stay 10 toes down mean to Nipsey Hussle as far as about what he felt about L.A. and his neighborhood of Crenshaw? When Lauren Lennon is talking about Nipsey staying 10 toes down, she's just talking about that commitment to never waver, never even move one toe out of your strong stance and you you know staying rooted right there on the corner slauson and crenshaw is where it all began for nip and his brother black sam you know they started from nothing and were literally chased out of that parking lot selling socks and mixtapes and t-shirts and eventually you know being harassed by the cops and you know they were able to open a small retail space in that in that shopping plaza, you know, and built it up and built it up until they owned the whole corner. And, you know, he chose to build his empire right there. You know, it was hard to do what Nipsey did, but he felt there was no other choice. You know, you mentioned the complications that went along with that, though. Uh, Nipsey was devoted to his neighborhoods, Lawson and Crenshaw. He's also down with the Rolling Sixties. Those are uh, those are the Crips, uh, a neighborhood gang in Los Angeles. How complicated, Rob? Was that for you to untangle when it comes to the person that Nipsey Hussle was? Because for a lot of people, gang affiliation is a black and white thing. You're either on one side or the other, and there's no gray area. What I had to do when writing The Marathon Don't Stop is to ask myself some fundamental questions and kind of re-educate myself about what does it mean when we talk about being in a gang, you know? Um, and that's why the book is titled The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle, because I tried to to place him in the context of California history and American history, as well as hip hop history. I started to educate myself on the history of gangs in California. And I learned about gangs like the Spook Hunters. You know, that was a racist white gang that operated in South Los Angeles at a time when a lot of black families were moving into the area. And they worked with the support of the Los Angeles police. And they were a nightmare. You know, they were basically terrorizing black kids going to school or families. These were all things that young Hermes Ascadome understood very well. He understood that history. Um, and so he also understood why neighborhoods formed black gangs to protect themselves from groups like the Spook Hunters. There's, there's levels to this gang thing. And, you know, to be a member of the Rolling Sixties was a decision that Nipsey made for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, I struggle with that as someone writing his life story. You know, there's a lot of reasons why neighborhoods organize themselves and set up basically groups to protect their own. And uh, I believe that Nipsey Hussle joined the Rolling Sixties for reasons that were strategic in some ways. I think he understood 
the history of where gangs came from. And one of his ambitions was to redirect those organizations to their original purpose. Yeah. And, and Nipsey Hussle, look, I'm not trying to make him seem like he's perfect. I mean, who is perfect? But he was a version of perfect for the people he touched through his music, through his businesses, and his community activism. So, Rob, let me ask you this. like, What do you hope people learn about Nipsey Hussle after reading your book? I would just like his mission to carry on. I would let, you know, the, the phrase, the marathon continues is a title of a mixtape and it's become a rallying cry for all of Nipsey's fans and people who, who love his, his whole movement. And I think it's an important movement because it has to do with self-respect, self-empowerment, unification, and not division. This is about inspiring people to change their lives and believe that they can overcome impossible odds. He did that time and time again. And if there's anything that we need at this moment is a little inspiration, a, a reason to believe. That's Rob Kenner. His book is The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Rob, thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm prolific, so gifted. I'm the type that's gonna go get it. No kidding. Breaking down a switch in front of your building. Sitting on the steps, feeling no feelings. Last night it was a cold killing. You gotta keep the devil in his hole. But you know how it goes. I'm front line every time it's sold. 100 pro flow. Run and shoot pro, 458 drop, playing bulletproof soul. Every few shows, I just buy some new gold. Circle got smaller, everybody can't go. Downtown Diamond District, jewelers like yo. Hustle, holla at me, I got Cubans on the low. Through the Cancun, smoking Cubans on the boat. Then dock that saloon just to smoke. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, JB Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.